On this episode, we discuss a conspiracy theory that is notable for two things. One, it was the inspiration to the hit TV show Stranger Things. And two, as we'll see, it comes close to driving Lee completely out of his mind. This is only a test. This is only a test. This is only a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and sitting with me in the bunker and just fuming and ranting already is Dr. Lee Kuma. Hi, Nathan. Hi, everyone. To you, give, no, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> okay. To give people a taste of what's been going on for the last 10 minutes, Lee bursts in through the door, furious, ranting, papers flying everywhere tries to put his headphones on before taking his earbuds out, complains about being too hot, and then realizes he's still wearing his toucan winter coat. Okay. Hi, Lee. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where this goes. We'll see see how you're doing? We'll see how I'm doing. We'll see how everybody else is doing after I'm done with them. Let's just dive right into it then. Let's we are talking it. about the Montauk Project. Yes, we and are. for anybody who hasn't heard about that, we're talking about Stranger Things. There is this connection where... By which I mean Stranger Things, the TV show, not just strange things in general. Right. Although, as you will see, that is also a theme of this podcast. But you're right that the Montauk Project is maybe the inspiration for Stranger Things. A number of people had made that connection, which is really interesting given what we talked about with William Cooper, because this would be the second time that a sprawling conspiracy narrative of the 90s became the basis for a really interesting and successful television show. Yeah, because conspiracy theories, it's one of the reasons we like to believe in them, even when they are not true because they're satisfying narratives. And as satisfying narratives, they tend to make for good TV, good fiction. All right. The Montauk Project essentially posits that there is a mind control experiment run by the government, some secret agency within, it's never really clear, as well as a time travel project. And these are kind of merged together in... Camp Hero, which is in Montauk, New York, and Preston B. Nichols, who is really at the center of developing this conspiracy, himself coins it the Montauk Project. I'm going to read you the dust jacket. I'm going to give you that of of the main book. So the main book, which is written by Preston B. Nichols and Peter Moon, it's called The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time. And again, in a hope of just sort of Providing as much clarity as I can at the beginning, I'll just read you what the dust jacket says. The Montauk Project chronicles the most amazing and secretive research project in recorded history through the eyes of Preston Nichols, an expert in radar whose job duties required him to study the Philadelphia Experiment of 1943, which led to the revelation that he had a secret life as a technician for a radar installation at Montauk's Camp Hero Air Force Station that was designed to control the emotions and minds of human beings. That's all one sentence. Additional research led to the discovery that radar could also be used to re-scramble matter and even to manipulate time itself. 
Okay. So right away, I'm seeing some themes. One, this is about mind control. Yes. And if you told me, hey, there's a secret government project on mind control, I would say, yes, there is. Yep. Yeah. We, we've talked about that in the past. MK Ultra. I mean, there's been a lot of that kind of thing. So we're on kind of steady ground there. Mm-hmm. My immediate problem is that this seems to be heavily based on the Philadelphia experiment. No, no, we're going to get there. Okay. We're going to get there. So we'll get to that. We will get to that. And when you build your home on a foundation of rotted wood and paper mache, that home is not going to be great. And the Philadelphia experiment, as we'll talk about later, is not a great foundation to build a true conspiracy on. Correct. It's really kind of two separate themes, as you say, that get merged together. Preston B. Nichols is at the center of it. And in, again, in order to try and distill it down to its essence, I'm going to focus on his narrative. There are others involved in the story. Al Bielik, Preston B. Nichols's co-author Peter Moon, and a psychic named Duncan Cameron. They're all central in this. And throughout the development of this conspiracy, other people come forward to claim that they were also part of this project because they discover repressed memories, and then they, too, reveal themselves as being one of the, quote, Montauk boys. That's essentially what we're talking about, is mind control plus time travel happening at a military base in New York at Montauk Point called Camp Hero, and Preston B. Nichols is centrally involved in this. And we're going to sprinkle in some, like, demons and some psychic abilities and stuff, too. Oh, yeah. Because here's already the first problem and the reason that I was getting frustrated as I was trying to prepare for our episode is that like with William Cooper, Preston Nichols has this kind of synthesizing quality where he takes all of these conspiracies and melds them into the Montauk Project. And so I have a list here of just some of the conspiracies that are in some way related to the Montauk Project as he narrates it. We have Nazi gold. Mm -hmm. We have lizard aliens. Mm -hmm. We have regular aliens. Ooh. That is to say the greys. Right. We have time travel. Okay. We have alternative three. Check. We have secret mind control projects. Ooh. We have weather manipulation. Ah. We have the Philadelphia experiment. Eh. We have brainwashing. Ooh. We have psychics. Ah. We I have... Knew you were going to say that. We have pyramids on Mars. We have the face on Mars. Oh, dear. Did I mention time travel? I can't even remember. Let's go back in time and find out. Right. And and it keeps going. I mean, we can throw in fake moon landing. We can throw in the JFK assassination. There is links to Jesus and Jesus's death. There's the Antichrist. There is all kinds of stuff. So this is one of those meta conspiracy theories that claims that it's going to explain everything. Yes, except that it doesn't really function that way as it develops. It's like a collage. And the problem I'm going to have is describing a collage. And so if you think about each conspiracy represented by some kind of picture, like a lizard for lizard aliens or the greys or something, I just cut this out and just glue it somewhere on a page. And eventually you come up with this massive picture composed of all these things that are somehow joined together, but how they're joined together doesn't make any sense. Right. I love it's, those art installations where you stand close to it and it's like a bunch of 
discrete different things. But then yes. when you stand back, you're like, wait, this all comes together into this one cohesive picture. It this, this, this doesn't this does do, not that. do that. It just remains these separate things. And it's as though every conspiracy that is mentioned or that, you know, that he thinks about is somehow brought into it as though, well, yeah, we were doing that or that was happening there. And also, Preston Nichols is at the center of absolutely all of it. Okay, so tell me then, you want to get in through this guy. So let's talk about Preston Nichols. Okay, well, he is not a reliable narrator. Mm -hmm. In preparation for this, besides reading his book and a bunch of articles, I also watched a bunch of interviews with him. So in one interview, and for any listener who wants to look it up, it's on YouTube. It's done by Channel 3X in 2014. Here are some, just some, of the things that Preston Nichols claimed in that interview. He, it's not clear whether he teleported physically or he sort of astrally projected to the center of the galaxy where he met God. God said to Preston Nichols, Hi. Welcome. You're the first one who's made it here. Okay, so, Good for so him. in all of religious history, not Jesus, not Muhammad, not any of the spiritual teachers. Not Siddhartha. In, nobody. Nobody. Preston B. Nichols is the first one who made it to God. Not Marshall Applewhite. Right. <laughs> None of them. Then God says, you know, ask me anything. And apparently... Oh, he's doing like a Reddit AMA. Yeah. Oh, cool. And uh, apparently he does. Mm -hmm. But does he bring any of this to the interview? You know, like this is his chance, of course, to tell us normies... What God said. Like what the deal is with the nature of... Nope. He just, oh. he just mentions that he had this conversation with God, who it turns out is a computer. Whoa. Twist. Yeah. But there's a flaw in the program this is just one of the claims okay this is one of the claims this is pretty early on in the interview he also claims to have seen the actual stargate so of course you know sci-fi nerds will know all about this device in the movie stargate and then the television series by the same name which is a travel device that is found by humans, created by aliens, and it allows people to basically instantaneously move tremendous distances. So he claims that there is a real one on Earth at an MIT lab, and he's seen it, and it works. I'm sorry for this, but I need to give you a sense of how he thinks, and how he talks, and how he writes. Mm -hmm. So here, this is a quote from that, from that interview by Preston Nichols, just to give you a sense of sort of how he thinks and talks. Although we have 23 gene pairs, and the top group of the gene pairs are mentality, and yes, we need negative traits to push ahead to advance, but we're supposed to have a 24th gene pair that brings the altruism, that keeps the negativity under control. Only thing is that most people have 24 gene pairs collapse into the 23rd, and recently medical science has verified this. They said that we're supposed to have 24 gene pairs and the first collapsed into the second. That was on one of the discovery programs. And I realized, hey, whether it's 23 in one or two, it's the same thing. It depends on which end you call it. 
And when we get most humans with the genetic damage repaired, this will then become what the theologians call the kingdom of God. And we have a piece of music. First of all, let me get into something else. This is, this is just how it goes with him. And this is the problem with the book. And this is the problem with the conspiracies is that it, it just, everything is just like, it's, it's almost stream of consciousness. As he is writing or as he is talking, he is just sort of like mashing stuff up. Oh, I saw this thing on the Discovery Channel, and this proves that my conversation with the the being at the center of the galaxy, which is all-knowing, and is true. And we have gene pairs collapse into other gene pairs, which will eventually be repaired, because that's like the problem with the program and God, and we're not altruistic enough, and then the kingdom of God will... And so as I was researching... The more I researched, the less I knew anything about the Montauk Project or about Preston Nichols or about what I was going to talk about today. You know, before I really started the research, I had a very clear idea. We should have done the podcast then. But the more you listen to this kind of stuff, the more it just, it's just impossible. Anyway, so that's who we're dealing with. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I'm waving my arms around. We have many friends who care about us. And sometimes they worry about us. Because of the subject area that we're constantly diving into and, and swimming around in, and I think perhaps in this case, drowning in. And I th is this the moment where Lee's brain finally breaks? After all of the things we've looked at, after all of the lies and the cover-ups and the scams and the hoaxes, is this the moment where your brain finally breaks in half like a dry twig? I think so. Oh, because okay. I realized something about myself. I've become a bit of a connoisseur with the conspiracies. Sure. And I like a well-crafted conspiracy. I mean, if you're going to do it, I want a little bit of effort put into like the internal logic and internal consistency of the ideas. And that's what broke me. That there was something about the lack of humor and the lack of a good story Coherence. that kind of really grated on me. And yeah, maybe got me as close to... This is by far, out of all the stuff that we have done, this is by far the most out there. Like like David Icke's lizard theory, it, that makes way more sense than this. That is way better written and makes way more sense. Alternative three is better than this. Now I understand why Lee crashes into the bunker throwing papers around and, and ranting and raving while keeping his earbuds and his winter coat on. But we have to, this is a podcast episode. I know. It has to make some sense. Okay, so I will try. And and here I'm going to have to give due credit to Emily Louise of Weird Reads. So the Weird Reads is a really great YouTube debunking channel. She talks about cults. She talks about UFOs. She talks uh, all of it. After reading the book and watching all the interviews, I was more confused than I was going into it. So I had to watch her take on it, and I'm not kidding here, five times. And that's why I had my earbuds in when I came in, because I was just refreshing myself just one more time on what the heck is actually being claimed here. So now this is Preston Nichols's kind of journey of self-discovery. And it's according to him, in 1971... He is working for a company called AIL, which is Airborne Instruments Laboratory. Now, this company doesn't exist, but okay, that's who he's working for. He gets a grant to do research on psychic abilities, 
to see if this is something that's real. And this is something that is totally believable because we know this did, in fact, occur, not necessarily with this guy, but there were all sorts of people who were hired by the American army and the CIA to do this psychical research. Well, exactly. So we're, in 1970, we're still okay. In right 1972, now. Harold Putov and Russell Targ of the Stanford Research Institute are approached somewhat indirectly by CIA and are given funds in order to test whether psychic abilities are real. Yeah. So this is actually mapping onto real programs. Some of this stuff is mapping onto real programs that are really happening. But okay. Nichols says that he's the one who's doing it. He also does not mention SRI. He doesn't mention CIA. He just says he gets a grant and he starts researching this. While he's researching it, he comes across a kind of force field, maybe a radio beam or a radar beam, and it has psychic impacts. And he's able to trace this beam to Camp Hero, so which he later calls Montauk. Now, Camp Hero is a real place. Yep. Or there's a giant radar array there. Yes. And it's kind of a neat place because it's designed to look like a fishing village, but it isn't a fishing village. Yeah, so they had designed it in order that if there were a war, it would not be an obvious location. You yeah. would look from the sky like it was just some kind of nothing village. In fact, it was actually a, a real installation. Built in 1942 as like coastal defense, giant cannons would help protect America from invasion by the sea. Yeah. And it's, side note, it's kind of funny that in 1942, we got to protect America, giant cannons. Yes. By 1952, you're going to need jet fighters. By 1962, there's no there's, protection. There's no protection. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And then this also actually helpfully brings the narrative further because this base is still operational yeah. in the 70s. So he is unable to explore any further and kind of drops it. But then the base does close in the early 80s. And apparently, he kind of forces his way in to this abandoned base. And he sees all this amazing equipment. And by his own admission, he is also a big ham radio collector, aficionado fan, and is really interested in this equipment and tracks down whoever is supposed to like, be in charge of this stuff. And they're like, yeah, you can you can have anything you want. And so he comes back to this camp hero with his psychic friend. And then when they, in order to, for the purposes of retrieving as much of this equipment as possible, why he brought a psychic along is unclear. But do you it, not do that when you go right? places? Exactly. Uh, I have to pick up a book later at a library and yeah, maybe I should bring a psychic along. Yeah. Well, make the whole thing much more streamlined. On his second visit, he meets a guy who's apparently living in this abandoned base who recognizes Preston Nichols and tells him about secret projects that have been happening there. Except Preston doesn't remember anything, but this guy knows him and is telling him stuff about himself and telling him about these projects about time travel and mind control. Oh, did I mention cryptids? Because they're also part of this story. I would hope so. There was a cryptid that emerged and, and, and made a big mess of the base. And the base was a mess. Like, it was burned out. There was papers lying around, all this kind of stuff. So he brings his psychic. He meets this guy. Okay. Now, his his friend does a reading of the base. 
and gets really freaked out and doesn't like it at all and is getting all kinds of bad vibes and is feeling like he's getting impressions of mind control and he's getting just weird things that aren't supposed to be happening. And so they kind of both get a little spooked and they pack up whatever equipment they can and they get out of there. Apparently, later, Nichols goes back and interviews locals in the area who talk about weird things happening around the base, weird weather phenomena, which is going to become important later, weird animal behavior. They're, they're acting erratically. They're kind of throwing themselves at windows, stuff like that. And I thought this was kind of funny. Weird, erratic teenage behavior. What does erratic teenage behavior look like? So I was thinking about this now being a parent of a teenager. And it, the only thing I could think of was they must be nice and polite to parents and adults. Yeah, that because would be weird. anything else is totally tracks with yeah. teenage behavior. Yeah. But okay. So one day he's kind of wandering around and he discovers a secret part of the lab that he didn't know about before. And he tries to gain access, and weirdly, they let him in. Like, they're just like, yeah, sure. And they give him a security card, and he walks right in, like, no problem. And he doesn't know anything about this secret part of his lab. He didn't know it existed. He's just discovered it now. He's walking through it, and he's kind of exploring it. And he happens upon a room, an office, and on the desk in that office is a nameplate. And it's his name. Exactly. Ooh, that's a good it's, scene in a movie. It's his name. Dun, dun, dun. So he's confused, but he doesn't want to arouse too much suspicion. So he leaves and he decides to go back on a later date. But this time he's not allowed in. Hmm. Because so that when sucks. he, when he tries to, when he tries to access it, security kind of pulls him aside. The director comes down. And it's like, you don't work here. You don't have an office here. You know, nothing like this exists. You don't, we don't know who you are. You don't know what you're talking about kind of thing. So, you know, he realizes there's something weird going on here. At this point, this story that you're telling is a story that he tells. That's right. It isn't necessarily true. It's true that there's a base there. But the rest of this is based on just his claims. That's right. Okay. Uh, which are narrated in his book, mm -hmm. in a bunch of interviews that he gives, mm -hmm. in a lecture series that he participates in in the 90s. But the, the degree to which there is truth mixed in with this is sort of hard to say at this point. But given what he describes, it doesn't make any sense. There is no way that you are going to walk into a decommissioned base call whoever's in charge of the equipment and they say, sure, take sure, whatever you want. Take what you want. That just doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. Now, but that's the least of it. Like we have a lot of other, again, I tried to spare you guys. We have a lot of other reasons to think that he is suspicious. So for example, AIL as a company, there's no record of it. Mm -hmm. The degrees that he has, there doesn't seem to be any record of that. He claims he was uh, working in the music industry with really famous people like Mick Jagger and others. There's no record of that. Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, apparently they're besties from childhood. I mean, there's all these claims that he makes. There's no record of any of it. So, and they also seem, and they also seem kind of unnecessary. Yeah. It's the kind of lies that you expect from a 10-year-old. 
Yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's also part of the problem with some of this is, yeah, there, that's true. I hadn't even thought of that. There is a kind of immaturity in all of this. But also just like, like I read you that thing, like the, the, the problem with his claims is that they aren't even, a lot of them aren't even testable. Like, what am I supposed to do with because the claim Because they don't that, make enough sense to be testable. Yeah. Like, what am I supposed to do with, we are supposed to have 24 genes, but the 24th has collapsed into the 23rd. Right. Like, what does that even mean? How is that even a testable claim? So the few things that you can test, kind of, like, did he go into the Montauk base? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, if it's an abandoned base, maybe you People could, have gone in. Yeah. Like, you could... I'm guessing teenagers probably went in there and had parties there. Yeah. You know, like... I mean, I would have. Totally. Right? So it, it's not for beyond the realm of the possible Mm -hmm. but anything i don't know like a lot of his claims are just so staggering that they that they defy testing and then a lot of other stuff as we will see in a moment when we talk about the philadelphia experiment i mean as you say it's it's a house built on sand like the foundation has been disproven we know that this isn't even a thing and yet a lot of his theory is based on that but i guess he might have gone to the base I'll give him that much. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So he knows something weird is happening at Montauk. There's this psychic beam that's emanating from their radar installation that w- that he knew in the 70s. He goes there later and meets a guy who apparently knew Preston Nichols and knew him as being part of the secret project. But Preston Nichols doesn't know what he's talking about. And then... Back at work a couple of years later, he discovers that there is like an alternate him that is doing work, but he doesn't have any access to these memories. That's how I feel about staff meetings. (laughs) Um, Okay. Anyway, so now he begins a process of trying to recover his memories and he sort of sporadically pieces stuff together. But then... He's working on what he calls the Delta T antenna. Now, I looked this up, and it only exists in connection with the Montauk Project conspiracy. So it's not a thing that exists outside of this conspiracy. And he's always very elusive about the real technical specifications. But somehow, this antenna is supposed to be able to bend time slash move you through time as he's soldering he's holding some connections and suddenly electricity passes through him he becomes part of the antenna and this brings forward all his memories and it's sort of like in a flash he remembers all of his participation in the montauk project well i mean in his defense i've done a lot of soldering too and the fumes can get to you and make it a so now we have the big reveal. Now we have the big reveal. Okay. What is going, what does he say is going on? Oh, dear. Oh, man. Basically, and we're going to have to backtrack again, but basically, in a way, I'm just going to reiterate what I said earlier. But basically what's happening is he realizes that he has been part of the secret project in the 70s, working at Montauk and then also at this secret place in AIL. And that he is this essentially the technical guy who is running the the radar 
equipment slash radio beam slash, you know, whatever antenna. And what they have discovered is a way of, through these beams, first of all, affecting people's moods, then actually just affecting their thoughts. So you could essentially focus a kind of a beam on somebody. And this reminded me actually of our discussion with Shelley and Project the, Pandora. Right, which was? Which was an attempt to try to, amongst other things, I'll just go with the wildest thing they were legitimately trying to do, beam words into people's heads to make them feel like they were going insane. Okay. Using microwave beams. So it's just like that. So okay, which is a thing that happened. So let's just add that as another right. one of the conspiracies that's part, except that in this case, it's more specific, like you can, it's not just single words, like you can totally control somebody's mind. You can also enable them to become psychic. So this is part of what he was working on. But again, it this is only one part of it. And maybe we should take a break here and talk about that part, because it's based on the theories of a 20th century psychoanalyst called Wilhelm Reich. Now, that is to say, Nichols very vaguely bases it on Wilhelm Reich and his theory of orgone energy. Did you want to talk about this? Okay, sure. I want to do a whole episode on Reich, so we're not going to go that deep into it. We can't, because there's like five other things we got to go into. Exactly. So Reich, student of Freud, he is a psychologist. He does some really interesting work on the psychology of fascism Okay. in the 1930s. Some good and important work. After he does that good and important work, he gets an idea in his head, and that idea starts to take him over. Mm -hmm. And that idea is that everything in the world can be explained which is always a bad start to an idea. Right. There's a grand unified theory. Everything in the world can be explained through this energy that permeates all life, mm -hmm. all existence, mm -hmm. which is orgone. Right. And he starts to try to experiment with that as ways of uh, controlling the weather with yes. his cloud buster device. Yeah, because bad weather is just a bunch of bad energy yep. all accumulated in this one place. And so you could... You could Bust it with good energy. Right. And the way that orgone manifests itself most noticeably in the human being mm -hmm. is through something that the French call le petit mort. Ah. Ah, oui. Yes. So basically, the idea is, as Nichols puts it, that what the quote-unquote government has discovered is that actually this orgone theory is legit. And that you can actually manipulate people by messing with these energy levels, that these energies are measurable, they're affectable, like you can, you can beam stuff at people, you can change their moods. And actually, you can not just change their moods, but change the way they think and effectively control somebody's mind. And, and he argues that, what's the term, radio sound? These are apparently, in the real world that we inhabit, part of meteorological devices. They're, they're what is actually attached to the weather balloon that goes up and then measures all kinds of stuff. But Nichols's theory is, no, 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 these are actually mind control devices. This was so shocking to the CIA and to the Senate and people high up in the American government that in 69, they shut this part of the project down. But... They don't go away. 
and it resurfaces in Montauk. And so that's part of what he realizes that he's doing. He is essentially the gadget operator for the program that is in part doing this stuff, that is beaming stuff at people. They have since his 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 memories tell him develop the Montauk chair. So somebody will sit in there, specifically this guy called Duncan Cameron. He's the main test subject. He sits in this chair. He has he has these beams beamed at him at a specific frequency and this greatly heightens psychic powers and even gets to the point of being able to bend time and then open up time portals. Cool. Yeah. So that's what he's what he's remembering and it turns out what year is he remembering this stuff this well that okay so back to his credibility mm -hmm. so this this is actually a bit of a fudge in his biography so he claims that this really becomes apparent to him in the early 90s but he's actually already talking about it in the late 80s so okay. his own narrative is unclear about when he's actually remembering this mm-hmm but he is, quote unquote, remembering this after a time when a lot of the things that this is based on would have become public. MKUltra is already out in yep. the public at this yep, point. Yep, yep, yep. The Philadelphia Experiment has already been a movie at this point. A movie that he has seen, that his buddy Al Bielik has seen, that Duncan Cameron has seen, and that has affected them so much that they have basically absorbed a lot of the central narrative and wonder to themselves, is this movie actually about us? Okay. So at this point, then I have to raise a possibility. Yes. We live in a culture. Yes. Our culture is filled with all sorts of weird stuff. Yes. This guy seems like a bit of a weird stuff collector. Mm -hmm. He's collected Wilhelm Reich from over here. Mm -hmm. He's collected MK Ultra from over there. Mm -hmm. He's collected the Philadelphia experiment from over here. Yep. And some of that stuff is real. Yep. And some of it is scams. Yep. And some of it is fiction. Yep. And he's putting it all together and he's turned it into this great big collage, which makes no sense to you and has driven you mad. Yes. Okay. But which he is then also always the center of. Yeah. Well, yeah. Which is interesting, right? It's it's not just that he is somebody who's discovered it. He is playing he's a central role the, exactly. in he all is, the parts of it. So in addition to being a collector of pop culture things and history, he's also got main character syndrome. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's making perfect sense. I don't uh, know why you went mad. Well, because I'm doing you a favor by 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 subtracting like 98% of the superfluous stuff. It's very difficult to to tease this out. I should there should be some kind of like a word for this. You have no idea. How... I'll, I'll go get you a trophy. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that's what I need. <laughs> exactly. Okay, but that was only half of it. The other half is this, it, it relates now to the Philadelphia experiment. So, so mind control was one part that this beam made possible. But the other thing is, these ex as, as his subtitle of this book suggests, the experiments in time. So, and Jacques Vallée, who we have cited often on this podcast, wrote an article basically in response to the Montauk Project and argued that this was really an updated version of the Philadelphia Experiment conspiracy theory. 
So maybe, again, I'll pass it over to you. You can give us a very quick summary of what the Philadelphia experiment was, and then I'll try and tie it into what the what apparently was happening at Montauk or at Camp Hero. Well, we have an entire episode on the Philadelphia experiment. Yes, we do. I, I recommend it. It was I listened to it the other day, and it was so long ago, and we've done so many of these that I was. It was like I was hearing it for the first time. I didn't even remember. I was wondering as I was researching this. It's like this does seem familiar, right. but have Philadelphia we, experiment. Yeah, okay. So very quickly. Yep. Early 1950s, flying saucer mania. Everybody's putting out books. Everybody's wildly speculating about UFOs and flying saucers. One of the people doing that is a guy called Morris Jessup who writes a book called uh, The Case for the UFO. And it's typical of that time period. He's terrified of nuclear war. He's hoping that there's some other being that's going to come down and save us from ourselves. Classic stuff. He starts to get contacted by a guy who calls himself Carlos Allende. And Carlos Allende starts telling him this story about this experiment that the Americans did in the mid-1940s during World War II. They were trying to make a destroyer the USS Eldridge, disappear. What they accidentally did was made it transport in space and time. And when they did that, it was horrifying. There were sailors who were like cutting in and out of existence. There were sailors who were like fused into the deck of the ship. It was a whole scene. It was awful. Jessup gets quite obsessed with this. And him and Allende write back and forth a lot. Eventually, the U.S. Navy shows up at Jessup's house with a copy of Jessup's book saying, uh, we were given this book with all these bizarre writings in the margins about time travel and aliens and all these other things. And as a general rule, when there's a UFO researcher, they get visited by authorities. It almost never goes well. Eventually, Jessup sadly takes his own life. Mm -hmm. Now, this Allende guy becomes this huge, mysterious figure in the UFO culture because everyone's like, who is this guy? Who is this Allende? Was he, in fact, an alien himself? Mm -hmm. And then he comes forward and he says, uh, no, I was just sort of lying about all of it. Yeah. And he has proof of who it is because he knows things that were in the letters. He has the identification that was used from the the uh, merchant marines. Yep. So it, it is him, Carl Allen. And he says, well, no, it was kind of a hoax that got out of control. Yeah. And then Jacques Vallée, in this article I cited, tracks down one of the sailors on... No, not the Eldridge, no. but the one that was, that was yeah, the sister ship of the Eldridge. So these were, they were all docked in the same harbor. There was, I think, five ships. And he is actually one of the people who apparently mysteriously disappeared from a bar at the same time that the right, ship disappeared. Right, because these poor sailors, they were disappearing and reappearing and vanishing. Yeah. And and then he explains what actually happened as well. So not only do we have the hoaxer coming forward and admitting that he had made it up, but then we also have the sailor coming forward and saying, well, this is what was actually happening. This is why we were able to move quickly from one place to another. This is the basis for a whole bunch of what later gets turned into lore. And they were doing an experiment yeah. on those ships back then called degaussing, trying to make the ship not invisible, but just so that magnetic mines and torpedoes wouldn't be able to home in on them. That's right. Now, not literally invisible, no. but you could imagine that that would be one way to conceptualize it in terms of, you know... In, yeah, we can make this ship invisible to torpedoes. Right? So we know that that is not a real thing. But, but it does become very influential because then 
Charles Berlitz, who is a big guy yep. in the Bermuda Triangle story. Yep. He writes a book about it, and this is another one of those guys that's just putting out material constantly, not because it's necessarily true, but because it sells. And so he he writes this book about the Philadelphia experiment, and then there's a film made about the Philadelphia experiment. Right. 84, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, right. it's fine. And then after these guys see that movie, now all of a sudden they remember this stuff. Yes. Yes. That's a problem. Because <laughs> I a think what actually happened is... They saw the movie. Yes. And it's a problem. I mean, it's so much of a problem. It might be like a copyright problem, you know, like it's that right. much overlap. But it's like if I suddenly remembered, wait a second, my father wears a big black mask and has a lightsaber. Right. And he's Darth Vader. Right, right, right. Exactly. What Nichols, though, suggests is that this, they, and, and based on Jessup's book and based on actually probably more Berlitz's book, that what had happened is that something, something, science, mumbo jumbo, and I don't mean this derogatorily, but just because they don't have a grasp of these concepts, they were like, oh, the again, the U.S. government has figured out Einstein's unified field theory, something, blah. And so they were testing time travel. Mm -hmm. And what happened was the ship actually materialized in 1983 at Montauk. At Montauk, well, not the not just the not the ship particularly, but two guys who jump off the ship, and one of those guys is Nichols's friend and the psychic who was doing all having all the tests done on him. So they jump off the ship because everybody around them is having these horrible things are happening to them. And they land at Montauk. Which is what happens in the movie. Right. And so now Duncan Cameron believes that he is actually one of the sailors from the, Philadelphia, from the Philadelphia experiment ship, the USS Eldridge, back in 43, mm -hmm. and is now moved to 1983 because of 20-year biorhythms that the Earth has. Just roll with that one because there's, you know, there's just a whole bunch of explanations in this that work like that, where the Earth apparently has 20-year biorhythms. So if you open a time portal at the beginning of one, there you kind of, it, it opens, the other end opens 20 years later. And this one is like a big biorhythm. So I don't know, 40 years later, 43 to 83. You know, Somehow it works. If a ship transported in time from 1943 to 1983... It wouldn't show up on Earth. Right. Yes. Because, because the Earth is moving. The Earth is moving. The solar system is hurtling through space. Yeah. Our galaxy is moving. Yeah. So it wouldn't be in the same place. It would just be in space somewhere. Oh, but but you're missing one of the things I spared you from, uh -oh. which was the, oh, what did he call it? The time imprint? Something like that. You know, in Star Trek, The Next Generation, <laughs> when they need something explained, <laughs> they'll just come up with like some kind of word. Yeah. And we see a lot of that in some of the quasi pseudo-scientific conspiracy theories that we come across. They'll just throw out some mumbo jumbo yes. in the same way the scriptwriter would. Yeah. And, but, but again, it feels like it was just kind of come up on the spot when somebody had, had asked them once. You know, yeah. it wasn't something that was deliberately thought about and coherently placed within a compelling narrative. It was just like, and here's this explanation, mumbo jumbo, science, whatever, time mm -hmm. imprint, whatever. Okay. So 
The point, though, for Nichols is that not only is this how Duncan Cameron gets here, and it turns out a guy I haven't even really mentioned yet, Al Bielik, he's another one of the sailors who jumps off the ship. But Which is to say he's another one of the people who watched the movie yes. and thought it was about him. Yes, exactly. And and they discover Al Bielik and Duncan Cameron, they meet later and they're like, do we know each other? And where could we know? And then they both realize, apparently, that they were brothers on the ship. And Al Bielik realizes that he was actually Edward Cameron or something, whatever. Just we're getting we're getting into the weeds now, and this is what I, I was trying to avoid oh, happening. So the point though here is that this Philadelphia experiment, which was which apparently was called Project Rainbow, of course it never happened, so it doesn't have a project name, but Project Rainbow was also related to this beam and its use and the ability to bend time and open time portals. Okay, and so this is what Preston Nichols is working on. He's part of this Project Montauk where they're using this beam to open up time portals for psychics to use, especially Duncan Cameron, to use to either travel through time. Also, apparently, they would pick up, and these are his words, winos and hobos uh, to test. They would open up a time portal and then they'd throw these guys in there, and sometimes they'd come back and sometimes they wouldn't, and... Um, then apparently after they get it, they figure out what's going on. They stabilize it and they start getting recruits. They start recruiting young kids and they have to be blonde and blue eyed young children. And they would be sent to the year 6037 to a dead city where there is a horse with a clock in its belly and maybe other kinds of powers mystical something or others and they were sent to the city in order to test their powers of observation or something it's not exactly explained except it is the cover of the book anyway this is when the story really kind of unravels because now interestingly because i thought when you said they sent a bunch of orphaned kids into the future where there was a burned out city with a giant horse with a clock in its belly i thought wait this is the moment where lee's brain broke well i me or nichols or something it all just sort of now it really disintegrates Mm -hmm. and now we have stuff where they're going to the pyramids on Mars. So apparently there's pyramids on Mars, but they've been sealed up. Sure, why not? And they are now using the teleportation powers to get into the basement of the pyramids on Mars. In a subsequent book, one of the guys goes back in time to murder Jesus with a gun in order to get a vial of his blood, which he then hands over to another guy on Mars who he thinks is Jesus, but isn't. And I'm, this is like, this is where it goes, right? And there's just like, it's just like, well, everything is possible now, right? Time doesn't matter and space doesn't matter. So I guess we'll just, we'll just have a little bit of fun. But the narrative, at least for the first book, ends when Nichols decides, okay, this is getting scary and we're, we're messing around with too much stuff. And he had come up with a contingency plan with, Duncan Cameron, the psychic. Oh, I should have mentioned also that apparently all of this exposure to all these beams made Duncan Cameron go brain dead. 
but he's still walking and talking because of his extraordinary psychic abilities. So just let that sink in. I don't think I want that to sink in. That's just like one of the one of the tidbits. But Nichols has decided, okay, this has gone on too long. This is quite scary. Oh, another thing that this beam or whatever Project Montauk can do, of course, is brainwash people. So while he's working on this project, he doesn't know that he's doing it. And so he has these kind of splits where there's the him that works on the project. And then there's the him that kind of is just a guy. That's what he fuses together later. And of course, this is why this is a difficult narrative to narrate because he discovers it before he knows what he's discovering. And okay. But he has a contingency plan where, oh, another thing I forgot to mention that this beam allows you to do, which is important now for this part of the story, is manifest things. So as You a, can summon objects. You can summon objects, apparently as big as buildings. Okay, you can just summon an object as big of a building and it just appears on the base. So what they had decided to do was that if things got out of hand, Nichols would give Duncan... Cameron a key word or phrase, and he would summon a horrible beast and it would rampage the base and destroy everything, which is exactly what Nichols says happens next. He gives Duncan Cameron the phrase, the time is now, which I feel like in a story about time travel is not the optimal phrase to use. But anyway. Which time is now? Right. But anyway, he gets this and, and, and then summons a, a cryptid of some kind, a horrible beast. It's not really elaborated on. It sounds like a violent Bigfoot. Apparently, some people who- Which also must have offended you. Yes. Some people who saw it said it was nine to 10 feet tall, and other people said it was 30 feet tall. And it's the one time in the book where Nichols is like, you know, people sometimes see things when they're afraid. <laughs> yeah. Right? Good yeah. point. It rampages the base. It doesn't stop. And the energy, like the, the power doesn't stop. So so Nichols and others now also try and shut the whole thing down by like cutting the power, but that doesn't work. And apparently there's some loop back to 1943 where the power from there is powering the base now. And anyway, they had to like break a whole bunch of stuff, which then accounts for the state of the base that he discovers when he first breaks in back in the early 80s. That's the Montauk project. That's what he, that's sort of his discovery about what he realizes he's been part of. And then through helping other people uncover their blockages around repressed memories and their quote-unquote programming, which prevents them from accessing their participation in these projects, other people discover that they were also part of it as well, apparently. Through... I'm guessing some hypnosis and yeah. And some of that. Okay. Here's the thing. As I said, very implausible conspiracy, right? And I'm being, I'm being polite here. There were a lot of other words that came to mind as I was doing this research. And as I was listening, especially to Preston Nichols talk. Okay. Very implausible. We know it's really implausible because even just a cursory fact check of say, the Philadelphia experiment reveals that it is demonstrably nonsense. But here's the thing I will say is that nonsense. I mean, a lot of the things that we've come across appear to be nonsense at first, but look at some of the things that have actually happened in this Montauk story. We have, for example, 
children being experimented on against their will. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that has occurred. That has occurred in the United States. It happened in the 1940s with radiation experiments. Right. Where there was radiation injected into children or put into food and fed to children. So that stuff happens. Mm -hmm. The mind control stuff. I mean, Natch, that's that's all over the place. <laughs> the the idea of manifesting things through psychic powers. We also know that through Stargate, there was a lot of interest in that kind of thing. So on the one hand, yeah, this story is ridiculous. On the other hand, unfortunately, reality is sometimes ridiculous too. Yeah. Well, you want to know what else uh -oh. happened? What else happened? I'll tell you what else happened. Uh-oh. Sounds like a threat. Almost every element of Preston Nichols' story maps onto actual government programs that were actually being run. I'm sitting here in front of a whole stack of declassified documents. These are declassified by CIA, but they range from projects that were happening in DIA, in the Army, also by CIA and a whole bunch of other acronyms. It's just like, it's, it, it, it's so tedious to kind of recount the acronym. And I have an org chart somewhere, which I forgot to actually bring. It's all part of the military intelligence complex. Exactly. Okay. So now I am sitting among other, other some of the files I have in front of me. One of them is uh, called Sunstreak. We can do a whole episode on it, but I wanted to mention this as like, it's not just Sunstreak. Yeah. It's not just Stargate. No, it's the gateway process. Yeah. I'm and I'm sitting in front of a whole bunch of other files where the stuff that the Montauk conspiracy claims to be about is actually stuff that various people in the defense agencies are working on. Yeah. The Montauk project, it's like a it's like a comic strip version. It's like a cartoon version. Yeah. Of an already fairly cartoonish situation. I mean, this is the problem, right? This is the, the problem. We have these people. This guy, Nichols, a couple things could have happened here. One, he could be telling the truth. That seems unlikely because so many of the claims don't add up and because so many of it are, are drawn from fiction and from hoaxes. Two, maybe he was in some way like involved with some of these real projects, and this is his sort of interpretation of them. Three, he's out here in this information ecosystem, even in the 1980s, we started to get bombarded with information about some of these weird projects. And he mixed that with movies, and he mixed that with pre-existing conspiracy theories, and it just turned into this sort of toxic stew in his head, which then turned into this book, which then, of course, put that toxic stew into other people's heads, and then it started becoming like a self-replicating organism. But... Here's a question I wanted to bring to you and to the audience, which my students are always asking me. So what makes us feel like we can say, yeah, the gateway process is something the army is interested in. Sunstreak is a project that the DIA is working on where they're trying to send people to Titan. And Preston Nichols doesn't have a clue and is full of it. Like, what? what is the difference? I'll tell you the difference. Tell me the difference. It is the difference between... The U.S. Army was interested in doing this, and the U.S. Army succeeded in doing this. Well, that's an interesting point, because that actually I was going to put that as another question, is if they are interested in it, and if they're researching it, does it mean that there's something there? And I think you're right that there isn't, because after careful assessments, 
all the time these these projects get shut down. And why would they get shut down if they were providing really good results? But I think there's more to it than that. One of the things that I notice, and so I've, 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 I ask my students the following thing. I say, if you only got to ask one question about a conspiracy in order to determine whether it was true or false, what would that one question be? And because I'm the teacher, they have to get my answer. And here's my answer to that question, which is, what are the sources? Where are the files? Where are the witnesses beyond, say, a bunch of people who hang out with each other and go to UFO and psychotronic conferences who claim to have this story? I think that's a big difference in terms of being able to determine, say, David Grush, is he telling the truth? I don't know. He doesn't have any evidence. He doesn't cite anything. But then when NASA does it, they provide all the evidence. They provide all the citations. They explain how it is that they came to their conclusions. There is just a robustness, even around bizarre conspiracy theory claims, which then check out or are just built on nothing, really. And that is, I think, a really big difference between determining whether something is true or not, not necessarily on the claims themselves, because the claims are almost as absurd in both cases. Yeah. 